What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And in for Adam this week, I'm Tasha Robinson. And I'm Angelica J. Bastion. Christian says that you've got some special thing planned. Yeah, it's like a crazy nine-day festival. It only happens every 90 years. And you two thought I was just inviting you to a taping of Film Spotting. Yeah, should I be worried about the bear in the cage in the corner of the studio? <laughs> Bear's always here. Oh, okay. Pay oh. no attention to the bear. I left my flower crown at home, unfortunately. I, I'm pretty sure Josh has provided us all flower crowns. There is not much dancing room in here, though. Oh. <laughs> Spent all weekend making them, guys. <laughs> that ominous bit of dialogue is from the new horror film Midsommar. It's directed by Ari Aster, who treated us to last year's Hereditary. Midsommar opened a couple weeks back, but it's been generating a lot of fun and a lot of devices of response so far. We wanted to weigh in. I think it's fair to say we have a variety of opinions among the three of us, right? Yes, definitely. And and a very violent way of working out who's right. (laughs) I'm a little worried about that. Angelica, Tasha, and I are also going to share our top five horror movie performances. It's all ahead on Film Spotting. course, our very own next picture show. Hello, Tasha. Hey, Josh. And we have Angelica Jade Bastien, a Chicago-based critic and staff writer for Vulture. Welcome back, Angelica. What's up, everybody? We do have a lot to cover on this week's show. Ari Aster's Midsommar inspires our top five this week, horror movie performances. And of course, with all this talent in the room and talking about performances, we have to do Massacre Theater ourselves. Are you guys ready? You don't even know what we're doing yet, so it's not a fair question. Just tell me. You're in, right? I guess. (laughs) I'm going to do the entire thing in the voice of the bear from, I'm not going to pronounce, you're pronouncing it Midsommar. I'm going Midsommar. I I laugh every time. I'm going to call it Midsommar. I love it. It's not quite as Nordic, but that's fine. (laughs) All right. Angelica, you got to be in for Massacre Theater. We're going to do it, whether you like it it or not. Also, because it's still very much at the midpoint of the movie year, I do want to hear from Tasha and Angelica about some of their favorite films of the year so far, maybe the one that's leading the pack for you at this point. First, though, don't be alarmed, you two, by the placid smile on my face. Just enjoy that natural tea I made for you as we discuss Ari Aster's Midsommar. Unbelievable. Welcome and happy Midsommar. Skull! What time is it? 9 p.m. That can't be right. The sky is blue. This is what 9 p.m. is like here. (laughs) How long have you two been together? Just over three and a half years. Four years. Really? Yeah. (laughs) What do you think? It's like another world. Tomorrow's a big day. Is it scary? What is it? It has special properties. What am I going through? We just need to acclimate. I don't want to acclimate. I want to go. Absolutely not. What's happening? Hereditary, the debut feature from writer-director Ari Aster, ended up in a place of grisly ritual madness. 
Midsommar, his follow-up, takes that finale and extends it essentially to feature length. The movie follows a group of friends and grad students, including a couple, they're played by Florence Pugh and Jack Rayner, whose relationship is in a precarious place, as they travel to Sweden to attend a midsummer festival in the small village where one of the friends grew up. The movie does have an extended prologue setting some psychological framework for Danny, Pugh's character. But once we get to Sweden, the craziness pretty quickly kicks in and amplifies until the gonzo conclusion. Logging my Midsommar review on Letterboxd, Tasha and Angelica, I made a claim that I felt was pretty safe. But in the comments, I had all sorts of different responses. Here's what I suggested. If you liked the final 15 minutes of Hereditary, you're going to love Midsommar. How about the two of you? Does that corollary ring true to your experiences? Let's start with you, Tasha. How did you feel about that Hereditary conclusion? And would you say that reaction is related at all to how you feel about Midsommar? Well, it's related in the sense that uh, for me, Midsommar, dang it, now I'm doing it. <laughs> it's I, working. I, I, I said plot. I was going to mispronounce it ridiculously. I meant to just call it Midsummer. I'm sure I will drift back and forth. Uh, maybe I'll just call it Hereditary too. There you go. Hereditary's ending, like the last 15 minutes, felt like it just went off in uh, like on a wild tangent. And I felt the same way about Midsommar. I felt like... It went off in a direction that certainly had been heavily foreshadowed, but that also took the story in a direction that for me just abandoned the themes it had been working up towards, that abandoned a lot of what was interesting about the characters and the relationships. And I found myself extremely frustrated with the ending. So I see the corollary between the endings. I don't know that I see the corollary between the ending of Hereditary and the entire film, Midsommar. Okay. I see more of a corollary between both of them in that I felt in both cases, that there are a ton of interesting ideas in there, and I'm ready for Ari Aster to to start paring down mm. and make a film that's only about five things instead of about <laughs> ten things. There's so much going on in this movie, and so many of them are are interesting and and cool and to some degree uh, well developed ideas. But he keeps it's like he's got a, a, a double fistful of tiny fish and he's trying to keep them all from slipping out between his fingers and he loses half of them by the end. And I would argue that by the last minutes of uh, Midsommar, he's lost all of them. Hmm. So, yeah, the, this film is a handful of fish that that he doesn't have by the end of the movie. There's a metaphor for you. Got it. Angelica, what was your experience with that hereditary ending? I like to say I liked the first two thirds of hereditary, but I feel like by the ending, that ending kind of abandons Tony Collette's character and it feels like it's no longer about her or the journey she's on and is just swerving into this crazy cult uh, witchy dynamic which can be really interesting if it's threaded properly and it speaks to the themes that the film is dealing with but I don't feel like it really did. With Midsummer. You know, I don't want to say I hate that movie because I think that gives it too much power and it's not interesting enough to be hate worthy because it didn't stick with me enough. But I really did not like this movie. Is it related at all to the ending of Hereditary or not? No, I don't think so. Okay. I think. What was it? I think I was just really fed up with this movie. Like from certain editing choices bugged me. I. The. The sister backstory I thought could be interesting. I just couldn't imagine these people existing outside of the frame because they feel so mm. empty and hollow in a lot of ways. I think I just was really tired of watching these white people who I didn't think were interesting. 
Well, there's a lot of repetition, I'll say. Yeah. Once you recognize that we're getting into some weird rituals here, mm-hmm. they essentially get weirder and more and I grisly. Love all that stuff. And but it wasn't interesting for you because no. I found I found the staging of it consistently interesting. The framing, mm. the craft here, Aster is, you know, once again showing that it has real command, I think, for cinema. But for me, it wasn't each set piece on its own was, oh, look how the camera is moving here. Um, look, look what the actors are doing almost as figures, where he's mm. moving and placing I things see. in the frame. That's interesting. But I was never compelled in terms of a narrative, I essentially, mm-hmm. once things started going weird, I was like, oh, okay, I know where we're going. I didn't know how we were going to get there or what exactly we would see, but I pretty much knew where we were headed and where it was going to end. Now, that said, yeah. I think I, it sounds like I liked it better than the two of you. Uh, I liked it less than Hereditary mm-hmm. just because uh, I, I'm with you, Angelica. I think the, and it sounds like you too, Tasha, the ending of Hereditary was just, you know, why are we going in this direction here and mm. losing all subtlety, losing all nuance, pretty much literalizing the metaphor mm. to the point of, you know, numbness. And here I felt like I, I really like this prologue of staging, again, offering us some real world rootedness in in grief and trauma. And then considering how is a character going to work through trauma, especially when they're confronted with something um, perhaps even more traumatic? What's mm. that going to do to her? But once I saw where that started to head, it almost became a series, again, of set pieces after that until at the very end of Midsommar, then we're going to bring back the themes. These things, Tasha, that you mentioned that are are falling through his fingers. We're going to bring back um, not only the grief that she's dealing with, but also the relationship with the boyfriend. That mm-hmm. That's going to kind of fall to the wayside for most of the film, but then suddenly it's going to come back full force. And it just didn't, uh, for me, the psychology and the supernatural and the terror and the horror were so more artfully wedded in Hereditary. Throughout, you were always wondering, uh, what is going on here? Is this a psychological breakdown? Is this actually some sort of supernatural threat? And in Midsommar, those things were almost too separate until they're tried to forced together at the finale. I wouldn't say I liked the prologue, but I do agree it set up some interesting ideas, especially with regards to grief. I will say... The reveal or the realization that the sister was bipolar and what she has is a psychotic break, which they don't say in the movie, but that is obviously what she has. It really got under my skin. I'm diagnosed as bipolar type 2. I don't expect films to go for realism with mental illness. That's not what I'm necessarily looking for because the realism of dealing with, say, a depressive episode isn't always fun to watch. You know what I mean? A lot of times it's you anchor to your bed. It's you just falling down crying because that's all your body can seem to do, which Florence Pugh, I think, is really good at showing the physicality of grief, even Mm. as the film forgets that that's what her character is dealing with, Mm. which was a big problem to me. You do not bring up such heavy themes uh, like familial mental illness like that and such an act of violence and kind of treat it as just like this flighty backstory and then just kind of get lost and swept up in the drug trippiness, hangoutness of the film. It feels like the vibe it's going for in some parts 
really conflicts with the heaviness of the themes and ideas it picks up but doesn't seem to know what to do with. So would you say in a sense then, just to set the stage a little bit for those who haven't seen the film, in the prologue, Danny's sister, she gets a concerning email from her sister mm-hmm. and she does mention to her boyfriend that she's been diagnosed as bipolar. So would you say that's exploit- an exploitative use I, of that sort of experience then? I, I hesitate to go that far, but I do think that such an act is basically a heavy spice for such a stew. You know what I mean? Okay. Yeah. It just, it overweighs it and it kept kind of bugging me like it was something stuck in the back of my mouth, like between my teeth. And mm-hmm. I kept like gnawing at it. And especially because I feel it forgets about her grief. It forgets about some of the most interesting things that are going on with her. And I think that Florence Pugh's performance remembers it. You see it in her body. But the yeah. movie itself does not seem to care about these issues really is more just setting it up and like it likes to set up ideas but doesn't seem to really kind of get into the gristle of them is how I sort of felt it, there's a lot going on there in a, like a lot of those different arguments I'm going to try to remember them and, and sort of look at them one by one as far as the prologue is concerned I loved the prologue not because of how it deals with like bipolar issues or even because of how it deals with grief but because of how neatly it sets up the the triangle between Florence Pugh's character and Jack Rayner's character as Christian her boyfriend and Christian's friends. I feel like, and this is where we may differ most, Josh, because I read your review and I, I got the impression that you feel that Christian is uh, like a fickle, wishy-washy, you know, mud of a human being. But I really liked that setup and how it gives us a, a situation where Danny is experiencing something so huge and so profound and so unswallowable. Nobody in her life can possibly be expected to deal with it. She can't deal with it. And it's a great deal to put at the feet of someone who has already decided that he doesn't want to be in this relationship and he wants out. And we, before we even know what's happened to her, we know he wants out. He doesn't want to abandon her. He cares about her. His friends kind of hate her and, like, want him to to dump her and to experience like a a fun 20-something kind of life with them. And that tension to me is all very relatable. Like I, I related to him in this situation of I'm the world's worst person if I leave her when she's depressed. Okay, now she's dealing with something huge. I'm even worse if I leave her. I'm trapped forever. And his friends looking at that and saying, just walk away from it. I understood their perspective. And then, of course, her pain is so huge. Her performance is so intense. Like, I I felt that that triangle was really, really well built. And to me, the problem with uh, particularly the third act of the film is just the degree to which none of that gets to play out, really. Yeah, All that tension is gone. I agree that I do think the dynamic, and I've been in that dynamic myself sometimes as like the friend sometimes as you know the partner where you know when you get into a relationship with someone you do have to account for the close friends and people in their life and and I really do wish it rooted around in that a little bit more because that was really fascinating even if I did have issues with how I think the characters were shaded so to speak I do think that set up could lead to some really interesting drama and tension and fascinating things happening that I wish happened, but didn't. And I feel like it fizzles out 
with a lot of ideas, but especially that one. Yeah, I feel like the first act does some really fantastic things, particularly with how Will Poulter's character is clearly just so impatient with the whole dynamic. And yet he tamps that feeling down to try to support his friend. He tries to be polite to Danny. He tries to be supportive. And you can feel his like impatience and disdain and, and dislike like bubbling up at every moment. But he's trying so hard as long as she doesn't set a, step a foot out of line. And at the same time, you can feel her feeling that judgment and trying mm. so hard not to step a foot out of line. So when we move into Act 2 and everything starts getting very druggy, I don't think the film forgets her grief. I think the film shows you very clearly how hard she's trying to forget her grief, how mm. hard she's trying to erase it with, with drugs, with this trip, with cooperating with whatever people say, with putting on a fake happy face in an attempt to fit in and Mm. not be the bad girlfriend that his friends see. And I I thought all of that was really fascinating. More so, really, than this weird community, which just sort of felt like Wicker Man Redux to me in a lot of Mm. ways. I think there's two reasons why that central relationship didn't really resonate for any of us. And one of them is uh, just that Rainer's not up to this. I mean, it's it's not so much that I object or have a problem with him as a character and the choices his character makes. I think those are really interesting. The problem is, for me, he's a complete blank as a screen presence. And, and this is a really hard part to play, let me say, is that you're playing someone who's fickle and aloof and trying to remain distant. That's really hard to make interesting. I don't think Rainer makes it interesting at all. He's just kind of, by trying to portray those things, he just sort of disappears completely from the screen so that there's no real presence there for me. And then the second thing would be that I don't think Aster gives them really strong scenes to make that. Think about the dinner table scene among the family and hereditary where you have all those dynamics going back and forth. This, and I'm thinking of the one with the parents and the son at the same time. And, and you get a full sense of where they're all coming from and the burbling anger and resentment going on there. Um, I don't think Astor gives, including Pew, who is you know a really strong actress. We know from Lady Macbeth just a couple of years ago. Yes. Uh, Uh, And what we see her doing here in this film on her own, but he never gives her a scene similar to one that he gives Colette, gives Colette a couple of those in Hereditary. I'm thinking of the group therapy scene, you know, a chance for her to really dig into her character in a way that uh, where the dialogue and the scenario are assisting her. Everything she does here, Angelica, I'm completely in agreement with you is physical. The choices she makes in um, soaking up that trauma and then letting it out in a way we've seen in other Aster films with this this howling Mm. that she delivers, we see it there, but we never really feel it or any relationship stuff in a scene that's been crafted to give us that. It's almost as if the movie becomes uh, more obsessed with staging these admittedly fascinating Wicker Man-style rituals and forget some of that important stuff again till the end when and when Rainer's character is kind of brought in to be like, oh, yeah, but remember, this is also about their relationship. Yeah, I definitely agree with you on that. And I think that was uh, a big issue for me is that we don't get to see her really get a scene or a monologue or something to really just like pull her what's going on in her interior life more into focus. I think you can see it in her performance, but I feel like the film forgets about it. And a big problem for me with Rainer is I agree, he's just kind of a blank slate. There's not much there. I don't think he's making interesting choices. I agree, it's probably a tricky kind of 
performance to pull off. Maybe I don't. You know what? Actually, no. I don't think it's tricky performance <laughs> to pull off. And I wish he had more presence. Yeah. I, I disagree with you guys so much about Jack Rayner. I felt like that character. I looked at him and I didn't see a fickle and aloof and and absent and blank. I saw a guy that was scared out of his skin. That was scared about the responsibility. He gets there for sure. <laughs> I, I don't know if I saw it earlier. Uh, no, I, I, I found him most interesting. Like in the scene where he's holding her when she's weeping early on and he's just so clearly – he has no idea what to do. Sure. Like he yeah. doesn't he doesn't want to be there. But I don't think it's because he's fickle and shallow. It's because like somebody just threw like a 3,000-ton weight on this person that he feels a responsibility for, and it's pinning him down too. Yeah, and I'm not blaming him for for reacting that way. I think it's actually more interesting than if he was the loving, consoling boyfriend. I just feel like his choice in communicating that is to just kind of go completely limp. Hmm. And, and that's mostly what I got from him. Yeah, I agree. I think also there's an essential problem with the film that uh, another critic – on Twitter alluded to, she tweeted something that I thought was really interesting and could probably apply to a lot of films. But um, this is from a Jordan Sears on Twitter. And she said, men seem to understand that they hurt women, but don't seem to understand why they do it, what the effects are and how to fix it. And I was like, that is that describes so many movies and so many issues I have with movies by men that deal with this sort of subject matter. I mean, when we get into some of our favorite performances, a lot of mine are actually the mad women of horror. Mm. <laughs> Can't wait. So, I'm excited. I mean, <laughs> it's tattooed on my arm for a reason. I love my <laughs> mad women. But that is something that sometimes sticks in the back of my head and it kind of pulls at me when I watch movies like this. Like we're witnessing her and and it's true, he has a ton on him. And I know dealing with people's grief can be really hard. It is. It can be scary, especially because you want to heal them. And so I came into Midsummer like not excited, but I really was hoping to have more to munch on. And I think even in my dislike of the movie, I wish I even disliked it more because it's just not much stuck with me. And I almost wish I resaw it before coming here. So when you said earlier that you just got really tired of these boring white people, are you thinking primarily the protagonist? Are you thinking of like that community of extremely samey people? Yes. In white? Yes. The community itself, like because. Ari Aster seems so interested in this community and like is putting so much focus on it and the ritual of it. And as someone who is a practicing witch and loves ritual, loves the ritual of it, loves the beauty of it, love, <laughs> loves even doing witchcraft with cooking. So I had to chuckle with the pubes. I Yeah, that was something. <laughs> um, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Pubes. Spoiler, a spoiler alert, alert that you yeah. wanted, maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe watch out. Um those people just aren't interesting. The culture, like, it it feels like it sort of could go in interesting directions, but I felt there are certain reveals that happen that I don't necessarily want to get too much into, but especially with their sort of religion and where it's written from and how it goes, I thought that wasn't all that interesting, and I thought it was a very strange and jarring choice. And so it's just the community itself sort of bored me. There wasn't much to it. There wasn't much vibrancy despite the color if that makes sense with actual people but in terms of the friends even if i felt like they were thinly drawn there was a at least they had some sort of humor or something so it wasn't those white people it's a community of scandinavian white people no offense 
to Scandinavia. So what do you make of William Jackson Harper's character? He, he's the only black person in the film. He's uh, you're, you're talking about like how fascinating Ari Aster finds the rituals of this community. Like he's expressly there to study them and he's kind of an amplification device. He's like, one he, of the friends, a fellow grad student. Exactly. Yeah. And his and his whole purpose in the film seems to be to like investigate further and, and find out like the next level of horror in the film. He's more a plot tool than a person. But he does kind of have like a little bit of story in that Christian in one of his one of his direct moves towards villainy suddenly decides he's going to steal his PhD idea yeah. or rather share it. Sure. I'm curious what you <laughs> thought about that character in terms of like is he is he a, is he a person or is he just a plot function? Did he interest you at all? Uh, no, because he is just a plot function, and like there's you know a certain red flag will always go off in my head when there's like one black character and their plot function. It will always be. An annoyance to me. I I feel like we can do better, people. But then there was also two other people that had come into the community that were people of color. I don't remember those characters' names. The couple, they're, they're yeah. so not important. They're so they're not literally important. victim one and victim two. Which like it felt a little weird, also like just the treatment of people of color in the movie. It's not like there was like, oh wow, this is an offensive caricature. But it was just like, oh wow, you're really just, you know meat to be beaten up and doesn't really matter like who you are and it just that sort of was jarring to me and that's always jarring to me you're you're kind of working towards the way i felt maybe about all the characters save one i think mm. is what happens in this film they do become elements, tools, material. That's the mm. word I'm looking for. They do become material for these art installations, which the <laughs> rituals are, except for Danny. Mm. And maybe here is where we should jump. I also wanted to do this when we were talking about the gender dynamics. We can do maybe a, a little bit of spoiler talk about where this does end up um, because yeah. it does relate to what you're just talking about here, uh, Danny's role there mm -hmm. in the ending and also the gender dynamics at play. So real quickly before we get to that, I just want to throw out there a couple of the formal choices because, I again, I was positive on the film overall that I did appreciate. I think okay. some of the things that um, Aster has brought from Hereditary are these hard cuts as transitions, the way the camera slides through walls sort of um, as it follows characters from one room to the next, and that growing dissonance on the soundtrack. I liked seeing that stuff again, even if it's starting to feel familiar already in a second film. The new stuff I liked was this eerie, overexposed lighting scheme to capture mm. The Midnight Sun of Sweden. And I went for, Angelica, I got to say, the, that undulating visual effect whenever they were under the influence of something because it was different from what I'd seen before. I mean, you know, mm. drug trips we've seen forever on film. Yeah. It just had a little different feel to it. And I'm sorry, but that one touch of when um, Danny is wearing the flower crown mm. and that one flower kind of pulsed like a pulsating predator back and forth at I the front. I just seeing it as, as breathing. And yeah, it was that was such, such a great touch. So I liked those uh, little formal choices that the movie had. Did anything about the, the look of the film strike you guys? Gosh, I mean, the visuals just in general, everything is so sharp and crisp and clear. The DP, Pavel Pogrzelski, um, was also his DP on uh, on Hereditary. And I think the, the degree to which like both of those films are just razor edged in their level of, of detail, but they look so fantastic different uh, is really impressive. 
I, above all, the shot that just really caught me is when they're driving towards the commune and the camera follows the car for a while and then slowly turns over oh, yeah. uh, so that the sky is below you. And it's such a simple effect that, you know, you've, you've seen before, but it was so well done. I, I literally did feel vertigo. I felt like I was going to fall into the sky and he holds on it for so long like he lets it play out yeah i think that's it yeah, yeah it's, it's not just like hey here's this camera trick i can flip it over but as like this unsettling you moment. feel trapped by it after a while yeah it's disorienting and ironically it's almost claustrophobic so like little touches like that uh the ways that she keeps looking down and, and grass is growing through her hands or her feet like i feel like this is one of the better movies in terms of trying to portray what a drug trip is actually like, at least for somebody on hallucinogens, because uh, we've <laughs> seen so much nonsense around this kind of thing in film. And here it's relatively subtle, but it's all perceptual and it's all about uh, feeling and all about that sort of sense of, of dread of sitting on the edge of, is this trip about to go very, very bad? And that's the whole film in a nutshell. Yeah. Is, is this trip about to go very, very, oh, Yes, it is. <laughs> Even when they're clear-headed. So let's pause here and give listeners who have not seen Midsommar a chance to skip ahead while we do a little bit of spoiler talk in just a minute. Midsommar has been playing for a couple of weeks, so a fair number of you probably have already seen it. If you want to let us know what you made of the film, please do email us at feedback at filmspotting.net. We'll come back with a little bit of spoiler talk. so guilty right now because you know we only do this every 90 years i was most excited for you to come So let's talk midsummer finale it does build up to this insane every 90 year ritual that involves some of the villagers sacrificing themselves in this giant bonfire and Danny getting to choose some of the other sacrifices, including whether or not Christian, her boyfriend, should be among them. She does. My read on it is um, somewhat similar to the ending of The Witch as this expression of self-identification, self-empowerment, hmm. maybe disturbingly wired in with getting a little revenge on him for some of the uh, ways he's been treating her. That's how I read it, but I don't know if you two read it differently or what'd you make of it overall? It's how I read it, but I, I think it's hot garbage. Okay. I mean, I, like, I understand what he seems to be getting at in terms of she goes through this profound experience where she's having a panic attack and the women uh, her age, uh, like the, the group of her peers, gather around her and mirror her emotions at her. They don't try to hold her back. They don't try to restrain her. They don't try to uh, comfort her. They don't try to stop her. They just experience it with her. And I feel like what we're seeing there is like, you know, only people who experience grief on your level can possibly relate and can possibly help. But they're not experiencing it on their on her level. Like as we're seeing, it's all very performative. Mm -hmm. And then we see them doing it again as, you know, people from their village are burning to death and screaming. They're all screaming along and tearing their hair. They're all gaining the benefits of this ritual and sort of pretending that they feel the pain as they're not dying. It, it all felt very fake to me. It felt like mockery to me at that point. 
where it where it's posing as a mockery of of what was happening, Mm -hmm. mockery of the pain that was being expressed. Whereas the first time, the first time they do it is the the pair of suicides, right? Where um, the man who misses the rock and Mm -hmm. breaks his leg starts moaning and screaming in pain, and they all come around him as well. And I thought, oh, is this some sort of like it's supposed to be comforting and it's supposed to be a form expression of community and empathy? But then I realized what they're really doing is drowning out his actual pain. It's erasure. It's erasure of actual pain with fake pain. That sat very poorly with me. And then the climax of the film effectively being we have created an artificial situation where this person who struggled in his own weak-willed way to stand by you throughout everything you went through has failed you. And now you're going to ritually destroy him for it. I I felt much more sympathy for him than her. And I honestly, in that in those last moments, I was just like, what are we supposed to get from this? This feels like a men's rights activist's like greatest fantasy of like, you know, women are crazy and they'll destroy you. You like you can't, hmm. it's not worth working to help them because they're just gonna turn on you in the end. It just it felt like this paranoid, hateful, misogynist fantasy to me. Interesting. And I just, I had no idea what, either what to get out of it or how it related to like two hours of of pretty intimate, sympathetic understanding of both her character and the struggles of the characters around her. How about you, Angelica? How'd the ending sit? I find that reading interesting and I can definitely see what you're saying about the inherent misogyny to it. I think my issue with the ending was her choice didn't feel cathartic either way in terms of how it was shot and even how we saw her performance. And I couldn't, I get that it was trying to go for this idea of, oh, look how empowering this is. She took control of this situation. but it, She's found her place. I think it wants you to feel. Exactly. She's found her family. And but her place is dismissing and destroying the person who's tried the most to help her <laughs> in her life. Yeah, I think... The idea that that's how she's found her family after losing it, that idea was very strange to me because I was like, how would she ever fit in with these people? One, two, like, what is she really getting out of this? It's an awful place. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that's the thing that that strikes me about this choice, if you do see it as she's found her family, is – at great cost. I mean, not only to some of her, even if they weren't close friends, some in many ways innocence. Yeah, they but, didn't need to die. And also, yeah. like, I really didn't have much sympathy for the character of Christian, but that just speaks to my issues as a human being with certain <laughs> kinds of men. But I didn't, his death didn't feel like there was any catharsis. It didn't feel deserved. It's more like, like, girl, just break up with him <laughs> in a dramatic fashion when you're out and you're looking good and then you can go out with your friends and get some friends who care about you, who are women, Possibly, maybe don't hang out with these kind of dudes because they suck. Like, I really want to be her therapist. It's like, so, it's like, so the, the once every 90 year ritual was a little over the top for a breakup gesture is what you're yeah, telling me. Yeah, it's just like, it's not, the punishment didn't fit the crime. Just again, I just didn't understand what it was trying to say. It feels so muddled when it comes to the relationship stuff, especially because of the ending and because of how it develops and because we can kind of we do see him struggling with decisions and it's and everything with him and the redhead in the movie, spoiler alert, he was being controlled with witchcraft which makes it rape, which makes it very weird to try to punish him for something like that. It really, that whole scene bothered me 
on levels both aesthetic and narrative, and I did not understand what Ari Aster was trying to say with that. I mean, fundamentally, it's Danny completely failing to care about his experience, certainly failing to understand it. And I I agree with you. Like, they effectively drugged him and raped him. And she looked at it and said, this is about me. An affront to her. Yeah, it definitely plays that way. Yeah, and it's very strange also seeing, like, the naked women, and it's like they're supposed to be a sign of the grotesque, because look at these older naked women around him and I really was thinking in my head Ari Aster F you like (laughs) older women like women's bodies are such a canvas and battlefield that like I have so much respect for older women just like being alive like in this world so that really also bothered me with that scene well there's nudity as the grotesque also comes into play in that hereditary that's finale for sure. Very, very much so, the same way. Tasha, mm-hmm. I love it. You're defending Christian to the end. This is great. Let, Literally let's, his end. Let's clarify things because uh, we've covered a lot, but um, I know I can say, Angelica, you, you're con on Midsommar. I would say I'm slightly positive. How about you, Tasha? Where would you fall? I honestly would say I'm I'm strongly pro until the last 15, 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I really thought it was a well-made and interesting film. It, it bothered me a little how closely it hewed to The Wicker Man. It, it mm-hmm. bothered me a little how much it could use another like 10, 15 minutes edited out of those endless dinner scenes. Mm-hmm. It, it bothered me that we keep getting foreshadowing. Like we, we know that those two old people are going to die in some grotesque way. But we spend like 10 minutes with the film not doing anything while we wait for something to happen. Mm. So I had all kinds of sort of nitpicks with it. But I think it's a beautiful film. I think it's an ambitious kind of mess, which is one of my favorite kinds Mm. of films. Uh, And I think it's got a whole lot of really interesting things going on. I honestly think I would consider this a masterpiece if it if it came to a conclusion that didn't feel like like a grotesque cop out abandoning all of the things that had developed in an interesting way and going for this just kind of like cheap shot of like, let's kick this dude's butt. That's Midsommar, which has been out for a few weeks now. So I'm sure a fair number of listeners have seen it. Let us know what you guys made of it. You can send your thoughts to feedback at filmspotting.net. So Jack Rayner, probably obvious, not going to be on my top five list of horror movie performances. Find out who does make the cut, as well as Tasha and Angelica's picks when we come back. Stay with us. In the woods there grew a tree, and a fine, fine tree was he. People have saying when people get cancer, they die. That was from the trailer for The Farewell from director Lulu Wang. The Farewell had a pretty rapturous reception when it debuted at Sundance back in January. I know, Tasha, that's when you saw it. It has recently gone into limited release, opens in Chicago this weekend. And as you heard there in the trailer, the fan 
as you heard there in the trailer, the family matriarch back in China is dying. So the family members, including one played by comedian slash actor Aquafina, she's a granddaughter, they stage this impromptu wedding as an excuse to bring the family together before her death. So, Tasha, you were high on this out of Sundance and saw it again, I understand, for the Chicago Critics Film Festival. Still high on it after seeing it a second time? Still high on it. I think, if anything, it plays even better the second time because it's a big ensemble movie uh, with a lot of complicated moving parts just in terms of it's based on Lulu Wang's own experiences. It's based on her family. So there are a lot of family members involved, and some of the relationships are a little complicated. And it's enough of a, a... comedy that a lot of it plays just fine, even if you can't keep track of the characters. It's enough of an emotional drama centered on her that it also plays regardless of how you feel about the ensemble. But the second time through, I could follow all of those threads and it just made it even richer. And I appreciated her her performance even more. Like, she's also, you, you left out the fact that she's a rapper known for a, a sort of novelty rap that's a lot of fun that I'm not sure we can say the name of. Uh, but... <laughs> Here, she gives a really impressive dramatic performance and a really moving one, I would Mm -hmm. say. And I think the whole film is just structured in a really interesting way to bring up the tensions of her being a – like she and her family immigrated to America when she was very young. She feels the the giant cultural gap between her and her grandmother. But she also loves her grandmother dearly and wants to be close to her. And so many different threads play out in terms of – a family guilt and her own feelings of inadequacy for an art program she didn't get into and her poverty living in New York City, her desire for things to be different between her and her grandmother, between her and her culture, between her and her language, between her and her family. And yet this is a film that keeps you laughing. I, I think it's really masterfully done. How about you, Angelica? I know you saw it. We were in the same screening just last week. So what'd you think? I completely agree with Tasha. I think it's a beautiful layered film and especially beautiful in how it considers our relationships to our own homes and both in the physical presence of a home and what they represent to us. Thought it would actually be a really interesting double feature with Last Black Man in San Francisco, which I think is also a really (laughs) beautiful film about home. And they both pair well in terms of being very rich and layered and, and and sharp about the way people kind of move through life sometimes with humor, not all all the time with grace, and how you just kind of have to navigate these hard, heavy burdens. And Aquafina's performance is towering. I thought she was really amazing, especially in this monologue she has after looking for an earring that's fallen on the floor. It's a really beautiful film and definitely worth seeing. We're that was all, my favorite scene. Yeah, we're all in agreement. That's that's a great scene, and it's a really strong performance. I only knew her from Ocean's 8 and Crazy Rich Asians. This is very different work, um, but very strong as well. She does what I think what surprised me about this film, about The Farewell, and this was just my perception from seeing the early trailers, is that it was much more serious-minded than I expected. This is not your you know big, extended, family, broad comedy that I don't think the trailer entirely communicates. But it seemed like it could have been there. And both Aquafina's performance and Wong's direction is they're very content to sit in the real sadness mm-hmm. that this situation considers with every family member's sadness and how they're, mm-hmm. each person's sadness is a different sort of sadness. And the yes. patience of this film to do that 
just really impressed me. And that's not to say that it isn't funny. I do think it's funny, Tasha, <laughs> along, but it, it's it's not because Aquafina is going for for jokes. It's more like that moment where the family it gets lost on their way to the hospital in the rain and they're carrying the umbrellas and they keep bumping into each other. Um, it's just a very delicate, um, almost slapstick staged moment from a long shot so mm-hmm. it doesn't hit you over the head. Um, that brings a lot of humor while also capturing the dynamic of this family. So There's a lot of absurdity to this movie that's really just the absurdity of when I look at my extended family, boy, there is a lot of things about them that I can't stand and that I couldn't stand to have other people criticize. Like that Ah, feeling about family, I feel is just all over this movie. And hey, in a super limited release, it made more per screen than Avengers Endgame. So I'm looking forward to this film coming out in wide release and eclipsing Avatar as the, <laughs> the highest box office movie of all time. We'll see. We'll hope alongside you there, Tasha. The Farewell, as you said, is currently playing in limited release. If you have seen it already and agree with us or disagree with us, let us know. Send those thoughts to feedback at filmspotting.net. You can always find us on Twitter and let us know there as well. Adam on there is Film Spotting. I'm Larson on film. All right. Speaking of Adam, he's coming back next week because, of course, he's not going to miss the new Quentin Tarantino film. So I'm glad that came up so we could finally get him back here in the studio. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is almost upon us. We're going to have a review and we're also going to share our top 10 Tarantino characters. Yes, top 10 producer Sam, not content for us to just do the usual top five. He is a maximalist. I think he wanted us, I think he wanted to maybe punish us for taking so many shows off by giving us an extra workload. You know, Sam always still has to do the work, getting the radio show together. He doesn't entirely get the time off. So our punishment is this top 10. Hopefully it'll be your enjoyment. That is coming up next week. Tarantino characters. If you have someone you want to make sure makes that list. And there's a better chance with 10 slots this time. Maybe it's someone, a smaller character you're afraid we're going to overlook. Let us know. Email that to feedback at filmspotting.net. Leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744. Or as I mentioned, find us on Twitter, at filmspotting, that's Adam, at Larson on Film is me. All right, over at filmspotting.net, the website, you can vote in the current film spotting poll, which is also Tarantino-related. We're asking you, what is Tarantino's best film since Pulp Fiction? Here's what we've got. The options, Jackie Brown, Kill Bill 1 and 2, Death Proof, Inglorious Bastards, Django Unchained, and The Hateful Eight. Here's where you two come in. I don't know if you need a ton of time to think about this. You haven't had a ton of time to think about this. Is there an obvious answer? There is for me. I'm just going to say it. It's Jackie Brown. Jackie I think Brown. it's his best film, including including Pulp Fiction, I including think you have Reservoir to Dogs. Just eliminate Jackie Brown so the poll gets interesting after yeah. that. <laughs> See, this is why I have you guys here. I love it. We are in agreement on that as well. Jackie Brown is Tarantino's best film since Pulp Fiction. If you feel differently, go ahead and vote in that poll. Also, please do leave us your comments and let us know where you're voting from. Again, that's at filmspotting.net. We will have the results of that poll on next week's show. I'm just picturing you and Adam, like, looking at the results and just like, look at all of these people who voted for not Jackie Brown. What's wrong with people? Just You think it's going to be unanimous that it's Jackie I, no, Brown? That no, that voting is no, not going to be unanimous. No. Have, you, have you seen film fans? I know. That's what I was saying. I don't think Adam would go that way. But... We'll see. We'll find out. Really? Oh, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. All right. It is time 
for the reason Angelica is here, the reason she said yes <laughs> to guess your I wish you could see her eyebrows right now. Time for Massacre Theater, <laughs> the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. A couple weeks back, Adam and I massacred this scene. Hey, pardon me for asking, but who's that little old man? Uh, what little old man? That little old man. Oh, that one, that's my grandfather. Your grandfather? Yeah. That's not your grandfather. It is, you know. But I've seen your grandfather, he lives in your house. Oh, that's my other grandfather, but he's my grandfather as well. How do you reckon that one out? Well, everyone's entitled to two, aren't they? And it's my other one. We know that, but what's he doing here? Well, my mother thought the trip would do him good. How's that? He's nursing a broken heart. Ah, poor old thing. Hey, mister, are you nursing a broken heart? He's a nice old man, isn't he? It's very clean. So that's Paul McCartney, George Harrison, and John Lennon in 1964's A Hard Day's Night, which was written by Alan Owen, directed by Richard Lester. That massacre was part of a show a couple weeks back where Adam and I shared our top five films of the year so far. So what's the tie-in to A Hard Day's Night? Why do we go that direction? Let's see what the listeners came up with. So Sean Means of Salt Lake City, Utah says, Well, of course, your massacre was of Hard Day's Night, the classic 1964 Beatles comedy, with Adam taking on the role of Paul McCartney and Josh pulling double duty as John Lennon and George Harrison. Connections? Well, you barely mentioned the obvious tie, which would be Danny Boyle and Richard Curtis's Beatlefield romantic comedy Yesterday, which came out the same week as this podcast. Maybe we could connect it to Her Smell, Adam's number one movie of 2019 so far, and arguably joining A Hard Day's Night as one of the greatest rock movies ever. By the way, if you want to improve your Liverpudlian accents, my best advice is to watch the old Animaniacs cartoon series and listen to voice actor Jess Harnell's Wacko Warner, which is one of the best John Lennon imitations ever. I'd like 42 pizzas, six with no crust. Karen Sablon from Portland, Oregon says, This week's Massacre Theater was one of the few I've known from the first words despite the atrocious Liverpool accents. Not nice, Karen. Winky smiley face, though, there. <laughs> I was 12 when A Hard Day's Night came out, and I saw it eight times in the theater. I used to act out scenes for my little sister, and I definitely did not consolidate George, John, and Ringo, who says, how's that, into one voice. Still, it was fun to hear that nostalgic dialogue from my past. This one's from Bev. She lives in Northbrook and works in Chicago. The accents may have had some origin in the British Isles, but I defy Henry Higgins to figure out where. Hey, pardon me for asking, but who's that little old man? Uh... What little old man? That little old man. Oh, that one's my grandfather. My personal tie-in is I remember seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan as a very young person. Don't do the age math. And being instantly captivated. I've been a diehard Beatles fan ever since. I've seen A Hard Day's Night more times than I can count, so I would have recognized that scene despite the pseudo-Liverpoolian accents. The other tie-ins appear to relate primarily to music biopics like Her Smell. Then there's the ongoing battle over Rocket Man, where you perhaps foreshadowing your replay of the top five classic rock scenes. Perhaps we were, Bev. Dan Carmody from Doncaster, England says, Amazingly, the Scouse accents made it easy, and yet I still can't tell if you were brilliant or simply awful. That's always the mystery, Dan. And, and Scouse, that apparently, I had to look this up, refers to the entire Liverpool region. So I guess we were close, maybe, getting there, perhaps. Henrik Hansen from Yalding, United Kingdom. Oh, wow. I never wondered what a hard day's night would sound like if performed by the Lucky Charms leprechaun and his brother. But now, I know. What little old man? 
that little old man. So thanks, I guess. Harsh. So how about harsh. how about this feedback? I know so much cruelty going on here. Nevertheless, we will still announce a winner. I hope it's not someone who made one of those mean comments. Wait a but... minute. Does he win your lucky charms? Sure, <laughs> Tasha. Sure. Why don't you reach into the film spotting hat and do the honors there, huh? Okay, I'm gonna do, gonna reach into this tall green top hat with a little <laughs> four leaf clover on it and pull out. Uh, Ryan Campen is the winner for this week. Ryan is from Parts Unknown. The last time he entered Massacre Theater, he said he was from Peoria, Illinois, so perhaps still there. Ryan, email us at feedback at filmspotting.net, and we'll set you up with your prize. Now, it's time for this week's Massacre. Is that everything? I mean, it seemed like he said quite a bit more than that. Something very different, and I hope very fun, for Massacre Theater this week. I'm going to cede the stage to our guests and play director, because accents, I can do very well. Clearly, we all know that. But in another language, I am not so sure. This is a foreign language film, and what we're going to do here is have one character speak in the language in which the film was made, And the other character, for a clue for our audience to help make this a little bit easier, will just speak in the translated English. So Tasha Robinson has been doing in the break here some very thorough research on how to speak in this language. So I'm sure this is going to be without a single flaw. Angelica is going to do the English part, and that means you're up first, Angelica. So are we ready? Speakers of this language, you might want to strap into your chairs so you don't fall off them laughing. This is going to be rough. (laughs) I believe in you, Tasha. All right, you're up first, Angelica, and action. Who are you? Yadodan. Have you come for me? That I know. Ardu bread. My body is frightened, but I am not. Ja, the thin is scammed it. Wait a moment. Dit a vala ag saga. Yarga inga ustag. You play Shaq, don't you? Hervis do that. I've seen it in paintings and heard it sung in ballads. Yeah. But you can't be better than I am. I have my reasons. And scene. Tasha, I like that you waited a literal moment there. She said, wait a moment. Really nice move. That That's my only note. Otherwise, I think it was perfection. You're a monster. As a matter of fact, I want to see this version of this movie so badly now. But we'll just have to leave it there. If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline is Monday, July 29th. And the winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. Wait, are you going to make me how to learn how to play Shacked too? <laughs> you don't know? <laughs> Everyone knows Shacked. <sighs> what? No, no. I, I told you I was never going to release my thoughts on these movies to the world. They're too dangerous. I swore you to secrecy. What if they fall into the wrong hands? I broke my promise because it was too important, Keith. Someone has to discuss these movies for the betterment of all humanity. Okay, but just this once. Tasha, you have some explaining to do. You let Keith's thoughts his treasured secrets out into the world. What's going to happen now? 
I mean, he burned his computer. We're all safe from his treasured secret thoughts. Honestly, one of the best parts of Next Picture Show is getting to script the opening if you're hosting and getting to make your co-host say and do any goofy butt thing you want. Yes, I've noticed that. That is, of course, from a recent episode of The Next Picture Show. Scott Tobias often seems like you like giving it to him in those openings, really making him do some things that uh, he would rather not perform. I enjoy that particularly. Oh, he I, nobody has ever said, oh, I don't want to perform this or come in with any reluctance. I, I think at this point we're all embracing it <laughs> fully. I, I I actually enjoy their enthusiasm. I also enjoy uh, like watching Scott, for instance, <laughs> say things like, Help, help, I've been shot, which he scripted for his own self. <laughs> oh, and he was very convincing at that. Next Picture Show. I was show. worried for a second that somebody had actually gunned him down in the studio. Of course, Next Picture Show, part of the film spotting family of podcasts, Scott Tobias and Tasha and Keith Phipps, plus Genevieve Kosky, all a part of that. It's a movie of the week podcast that's devoted to a classic film and how it shaped your guys' thoughts on a recent release. So you pair two films. New episode comes out every Tuesday. What's coming up for folks, Tasha? I know you said you recently made plans for an upcoming show or you just recorded one. Uh, we're just about to record. Next week, we'll record a pairing of Fight Club and The Art of Self-Defense, which are both movies about masculinity and the the desire to reclaim it, the fear of being a, a beta male, essentially, in an alpha male world. Uh, both of them kind of dark comedies, both of them a little on the psychoanalytical side, both of them funny in really unexpected ways, and both of them pretty subversive. I highly recommend The Art of Self-Defense, which is one of those movies that's impossible to market or predict and that you're almost better off not knowing anything about going in. It definitely unfolded in a lot of expected ways, and I think it's going to be a really fun pairing with Fight Club as we hit Fight Club's 20th anniversary. So look for that in your podcast feed. If you haven't subscribed to the next picture show yet, I encourage you to do that. Would you say, Tasha, as we move on here to talk a little bit very briefly about our favorite films of the year so far, is The Art of Self-Defense up there for you or is something else in the lead at this point? What's the movie that that kind of is at the top for you if there is one for 2019? Uh Art of Self-Defense is actually pretty high up there, but it, it hasn't been so far a, a humongous year for me. And a part of that is just because of my job. I have a tendency to see a lot of the like the big blockbuster and franchise and speculative films uh, during this time of year and then go in and fill in. Like I still haven't seen Her Smell, for instance. Okay. Um, I enjoyed Booksmart a great deal. So fun. Uh, I think Us is probably the, the top of my list for the year so far at the okay. moment. Angelica, how about you? You have a front uh, I don't think I have a front runner now, but I will say one movie that has stuck with me and may end up on my year end list is Crawl of all things. Nice. It hit a certain sweet spot I wasn't expecting because I'm from Miami. I used to be on a swim team. I used to, for a brief time, be a lifeguard and all that. I'm and, waiting. I'm waiting for the alligators to come and, in here. You know, I once punched an alligator. Okay. It was looking at me funny. Here we are. There we go. And I'm just that kind of girl. So I, it really spoke to my spirit. I love how you find a way to relate every movie to personal experience. But now I just want to throw like every classic movie I've ever seen at you and find out like Plan like, Nine from Outer Space. I've been to outer space. (laughs) See? I love it. It's a gift. So awesome. Crawl, I'm convinced, you know, we've had this alligator who was just this week captured Mm -hmm. in the Humboldt Park Lagoon here in Chicago. They got the alligator. They brought in an expert, someone who knew what they were doing. They caught him overnight. 
I'm convinced that was a marketing ploy because it was the, this was going on when Crawl opened in theaters, oh right? Had to have been. Was it a marketing ploy? A cute little gator marketing ploy? I love it. Yeah, I I'm thinking it. it must have been. When they pulled it out, did it have Sea Crawl in theaters now printed <laughs> on its back? Actually, it said that. that. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That would be perfect. All right. Well. We shared our top five of the year so far a few weeks back now. Adam and I did. I had Jordan Peele's us at number one, liked it quite a bit, as well as you, Tasha. Uh, Adam had Alex Ross Perry's Her Smell. If you want to listen to that show, it's episode 735. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts or, of course, at filmspotting.net. All right. Let's get to the top five horror movie performances. And we're going to start with a voicemail from listener Kenny Meyer. Hey, film spotting family. Kenny Meyer calling from North Hollywood, California with my favorite horror movie performance. Honorable mention is Essie Davis from The Babadook from a few years back. Her portrayal of a mother losing her grip is bone chilling and heartbreaking and terrifying and I just love it. And it fits well with my actual number one, which is Shelley Duvall in The Shining. For years, Jack in The Shining was my number one uh, because his balls-to-the-wall gonzo madman antics are so entertaining and impressive and scary. But the more I watch it, the more I realize that the person that's really holding it together and giving the audience an entry point into the madness of that world is Shelley Duvall. And I know she was put through a lot by Kubrick to get to that level of exhaustion and... Uh, a lot of her fear is real and it really translates. So while I don't exactly think that that's morally correct, it's already happened and the fact that it exists makes me happy. Now I just sound like a jerk. But that's my number one. Shelley Duvall, The Shining, she's amazing. Thank you very much for that, Kenny. Kenny used to be one of the listeners who would do the annual Boulder meetup with me when I would be doing Ebert Interruptus. Then he moved away. Guy moves to L.A. I go to L.A. just a couple of weeks ago, do a meetup there, and he doesn't show up. So I don't know if it's something I said, Kenny, but at least you're still contributing voicemails. Thank you for that. He touched on the ability to convincingly portray fear, which is certainly, I think, part an important part of a horror performance. I'm wondering for the two of you, is there something we should be looking for in this sort of acting that's distinct from a performance in another genre? Did that come to mind when you guys were forming your list? Do you do you assess horror performances differently than other types of performance? Do you look for different things? Did any of that come into play as you guys were doing this? No, I don't think it was at the front of my mind, but I probably do have very high standards for horror or I... I look for an intense physical connection to a performance in a film. I want to feel things in my body as much as in my mind and my spirit when I watch a horror performance. Horror is one of my favorite genres. I've loved it since my mother was braiding my hair watching Tales from the Crypt. I don't know why she thought it was okay for a child to watch that, (laughs) but I did. And so I love it. And it's stuck. It's stuck. How about you, Tasha? I think everything on my list turns out to be something that's uh, about relatability, that's Mm -hmm. about the ability to to give a a, a nuanced, complicated human performance. Because, you know, you you think about horror performances and you often go to like the era of the scream queens, just like people who are really good at portraying terror. That doesn't interest me that much. Like, obviously, if the person on screen doesn't look scared, it's harder to be scared. But 
in terms of greatest horror performances, I want something that's like a rich drama and that the performance brings out a lot of different aspects of a character in a way that makes them complicated and nuanced rather than just scary or scared. Uh, so there are no, uh, you know, Robert Englund's, for instance, on my list. Mm. There are no no the bad guys who are scary and memorable. It's all about uh, complicated performances, complicated characters. All right, let's get into that list. What do you have, Tasha, at number five? Well, I started off with Edward Woodward in the original 1973 Wicker Man, which is one of my all-time favorite horror films. And it isn't paced or plotted or structured anything like a modern horror film, but it's got a great sense of creeping dread. And in the in a show where we're talking about Midsommar, as you like to say, <laughs> uh, it just immediately leapt to mind. Edward Woodward plays this detective who comes to an island and is looking for uh, a lost girl. He's been sent a letter saying, you know, this girl has disappeared. Come find him. And he is a devout Christian. He's very, very uptight. He's very judgmental. And everything he sees on the island offends him. Sergeant Howie, West Highland Police. I am here to investigate the disappearance of Rowan Morrison. If she existed, we would know. You suspect foul play. I suspect murder. just this tremendous performance of of disdain and upset and anger and judgment and self-righteousness that starts to break down the more he's in this environment of what turns out to be a flagrant pagan ritual. It challenges his beliefs. It challenges his morals. It challenges his emotion. And I love watching the way the story plays out, but none of it would work without that central performance from him. And then when the film comes to its inevitable climax, it is so chilling to me because he he brings across the the scared in a way that I've rarely seen before. So I can see why maybe that was in the back of your head when you were watching Midsommar, not only the entire film, but that particular performance and what was going on there. Because similar conclusions in some ways, right? But mm-hmm. handled very differently and, and maybe differently performed as well. By mm-hmm. Differently motivated, differently set up, but definitely like hitting the same family notes. All right. Angelica. Let's get started on your list. What do you have at number five? Natalie Portman and Jackie. I actually wrote about it being a horror film when it came out in 2016. So you're prepared to defend this this rather unusual choice. Okay, let's hear it. Uh, Read my article on the outline from a few years ago. I don't even remember what I actually said. But uh, with Natalie Portman's performance in Jackie, it's a performance I keep coming back to partially because... It's such a testament to what she's trying to do and this performance about grief and being incredibly raw nerved and like every little thing gets to her and she's so transparent in the emotions she's dealing with. It really deeply affected me. And as I'm currently grieving the loss of my cousin, I I guess I've been returning to films that deal with grief sometimes in very horrific ways. Good day, Mrs. Kennedy. Um, Mr. Valenti. Would you mind getting a message to all our funeral guests when they land? Of course. Inform them that I will walk with Jack tomorrow. Alone, if necessary. And tell General de Gaulle that if he wishes to ride in an armored car or in a tank, for that matter, I won't blame him. And I'm sure the tens of millions of people watching won't either. Why are you doing this, Mrs. Kennedy? I'm just doing my job. 
that performance is one that stuck to me because I feel like it speaks to the truth of how grief affects the body and you can see it in the body. Yeah, mm-hmm. That's fascinating. I don't. Th- I, I definitely haven't read that essay, and I don't think I ever would have typed that film as a horror film. But boy, it really does use blood like a horror film. It, it does. really does deal with just the the indelible stain mm. of you know the the detritus of human life as mm. something that just doesn't wash out. And I I can see it. I can see it in how it's directed and just how that movie feels. Yeah, definitely. It's it's in the directing choices, the score. And certain aesthetic choices that the horror really is leaned into. Yeah, Micah Levy's score, right? Is that, that who Correct. did that? Yeah, which is very off kilter and has very uh, strong horror notes as well. Mm. So, all right, nice pick. I like it. I started my list by thinking about one of one of sort of the guiding um, lights for me this time around was this IndieWire critic survey that just came out about ten days ago, I think, and it asked about the best performances in horror. Exactly what we're doing here in the introduction to the survey, David Ehrlich asked the respondents to consider how the performance, quote, leveraged the genre to accomplish something that might not have been possible in a more grounded type of movie. So that wasn't my only rule I used, but I did think about that. It was in the back of my head as I put together my list and really tried to narrow it down because there were so many options for this list, so many directions I could have gone. And at number five, well, There are a lot of places you could probably go as well if you just wanted to focus on the universal horror heyday. I mean, you've got Bella Lugosi as Dracula, Boris Karloff as Frankenstein, Claude Rains in The Invisible Man, which I still get crap from my now 13-year-old for showing her, Angelica, talking about showing kids that are maybe inappropriate when they're too young. I showed that to her when she was, I don't know, maybe six, seven, something like that. She claims it was traumatizing. I don't quite see it, but I still get crap for it. I I don't quite see it. I think she'll be okay. Anyway, I didn't go. No. Oh, the pun? No. I don't pun. I'm actually, I'm anti-pun, Tasha. Mm. So I'm sorry I did that. I apologize to myself. (laughs) But not us. Back to the horror heyday for Universal. I went with none of those. Didn't go with those options. But the performance that usually comes to mind when I think of these films, and it's Elsa Lanchester as the bride in 1935's Bride of Frankenstein, James Whale's sequel to Frankenstein, generally considered the better film. I like them both myself. There's a great clip on YouTube of this Dick Cavett interview that Lanchester did, and she's talking about playing the bride, and she brings up the way she would hiss at Boris Karloff, who is the creature. I let out a noise when I saw... Uh, Boris Karloff, I let out a noise like a swan. If any of you have ever seen an angry swan in the park, I don't know. (laughs) That's That's frightening. Yeah, I think I did it through my nose more. Angry swan is a good way to think about this performance. There is something bird-like about her movements, something also robotic Mm. when you watch her too. And I think that Both of those qualities capture the stiffness of a corpse, which really throws me off when I'm watching it. And she also has these wild eyes of a creature who's suddenly brought to life and trying to really trying to comprehend its own existence in those first few moments. There's a little uh, a forky here from Toy Story 4 in a way (laughs) uh, to this performance. It does make me realize that in horror, physicality is maybe maybe it's a little bit more important of a tool than it is in other films for actors. Or maybe it's just one that they can employ in more imaginative ways. Again, leveraging the genre, as David Ehrlich put it in that IndieWire 
critics survey. This is a very small part I should probably note. Uh, Lanchester, she does appear as Mary Shelley in the prologue to the film, but doesn't show up as the bride until the very ending. But it's just a performance that has such a ferocity, such a physicality to it that um, she makes those few moments count. So the bride is up there as one of those iconic horror figures, I think, to the point where, you know, parodied, of course, by Madeline Kahn so wonderfully in Mel Brooks' Young Frankenstein. So that's where I'm going at number five. Let's get back to your list, Tasha. What do you have at number four? Uh, number four is uh, one of my all-time favorite horror films. Maybe, maybe honestly, my all-time favorite horror film. It's uh, Bell and Reda as uh, Laura in The Orphanage, yeah. the, the 2007 film uh, directed by Jay Bayona, part of uh, Guillermo del Toro's like gathering together of uh, Spanish language directors and and boosting them to get their uh, initial projects out there. Wow, this film! It's so beautifully done it's so visually gorgeous it's so scary yes, uh, but it is. it's also it's so rich in ways that sometimes really numbingly terrifying movies aren't and the whole film wouldn't work without Rita basically embodying uh, this series of emotional discoveries on her own. She kicks off the story by returning to the orphanage where she grew up as a child and she you you basically watch her kind of reliving her youth you watch her dealing with her own son and like her own uh way of dealing with children her own connection the, the connection that she didn't have as a child you see her go through some some pretty horrifying events and some terrible losses and then trying to deal with them and then you see her making decisions that most people would not make and every step of it is believable every step of it is understandable and you're frightened for her and you you realize how frightened you would be in the circumstances that she deliberately puts herself in but she's also just so admirable in the way she pushes herself into those situations in order to get what she wants it's there's a long tradition of female horror leads who have to push past their fear and do something terrifying by the end of the movie, you know, who who get over that hump of, like, being afraid of all of the things that they've encountered and, and realize that they have to take a stand. The stand she takes is very personal and so, so chilling. I love this movie tremendously and I love her in it so much. Yeah, Rueda is on my honorable mentions list. The Orphanage is also one of my favorite horror films and has made another top five list. Actually, Tomas, who I affectionately refer to as Baghead Boy, uh, <laughs> my number one terrifying character, actually. So, yeah, The Orphanage did a number on me. Angelica, where are we going for you at number four? Because I mentioned Tales from the Crypt, I'm actually going to pick something I originally was not going to say. Okay. That was on my long list, but I'm going to go with Jada Pinkett Smith from Demon Knight. Uh, she is one of my favorite final girls. I think she's grounded. She's resourceful. She's prickly. She's dynamic. She's just a regular black girl who gets kind of in the crosshairs of the fight between good and evil with evil being representative of an incredibly campy Billy Zane as a higher level demon, but not the devil, who has his own agenda. And it's just really fun watching them play off each other and her figuring out ways to survive and also figuring out people underestimate her because she's a black woman and that can be a tool in and of itself. It's a really fun, dynamic, in your face, sympathetic performance that I just kind of come back to time and time again because I just love watching it. 
I might have a final girl as well at my number four. I think. You tell me if she counts. Probably not usually thought of in this sense, but Tippi Hedren in The Birds, <laughs> I guess, maybe. She lives right at the end, doesn't she? She lives. Yeah, she does live. <laughs> she doesn't walk out of there alone, though. There's there's other people with her, which yeah. makes her feel a little okay. less final. Yeah, yeah, I suppose that's true. Yeah. But then again, the birds are still there. So, yeah. I, you know. Okay, we, she doesn't we, count at all. They were, She's not a final girl Hitchcock at all. Hitchcock was trying to make a franchise, and he just never got the funding for Birds 2, where all of those perched birds like take off again and kill everybody but Tippi Hedren. We were robbed. Well, the first time, the first couple of times I watched the birds, I think when it comes to this performance, the Hedren, I was with the conventional wisdom that this was like one of those bad performances for the ages. And it was sort of as if, if the, if the movie, if the birds was in on some sort of joke, the outlandish silliness of this premise, it was like Hedren wasn't. Somehow she had been left on the outside. But I watched again about a year or maybe two ago, and it made me wonder if Hedren isn't maybe up to some subterfuge here, that maybe she's giving one of those performances that's purposefully working against other elements of the movie. So consider the long opening third of this film, which establishes Hedren's Melanie Daniels, she's San Francisco socialite, as something of this sultry stalker. So she's tracking down this lawyer played by Rod Taylor all the way to his seaside home. And I think the movie wants us to look at her skeptically, if not critically, question her motivations. But Hedren, if you watch her, she brings such confidence and commitment that she could also simply be read as a strong woman determined to get what she wants. Good morning. Good morning. I wonder if you could help me. Well, try my best. I'm looking for a man named Mitchell Brenner. Yeah. Do you know him? Yeah. Where does he live? Right here, Bodega Bay. Yes, I know, but where? Right across the bay there. Where? Now, see where I'm pointing? Yes. Uh, See them two big trees across there? You mean on the other side of the bay? Yes. And the White House? Yes. That's where the Brenners live. The Brenners? Mr. and Mrs. Brenner? No, just Lydia and the two kids. The two kids? Yeah, Mitch and the little girl. Oh, I see. How do I get down there? Well, you follow the road around the bay, and that'll take you right to their front door. The front door. Is there a back road I can take? No, that's the only road. You see, I want to surprise them. Oh? I don't want them to see me arrive. Oh. It's a surprise, you see. Later than when the birds attack, Melanie seems to be fighting on two fronts in a way. You've got the birds, of course, but there's also the implication that the movie is sort of making that Melanie's independence is also something unnatural. Uh, in fact, that her her feminist behavior has almost, in a way, instigated this calamity, that she's responsible for it just by acting this way. So there's my somewhat alternate reading of The Birds and a defense of Tippi Hedren's notorious performance. Are either of you going to buy that a little bit? I'm not going to fight it. It's been a very long time. I haven't seen The Birds since yeah, college. I was just about to say I haven't seen that. <laughs> so so check it out again because this last time I watched it, I, I really went for it. I loved it. just For the craft, which I think people do respect for it, mm. but also I think for Hedren's performance. It's a good one. Better or worse than Birdemic? <laughs> which kind of mines similar veins thematically. I'm going to have to catch up with Birdemic, Tasha. Mm. Sorry. What do you got at number three? Well, at number three, I've got Elena and Aya in The Skin I Live In, which mm. is a Pedro Almodovar film. 
that's one of those films that may not play as horror until you get deeper into it. It's another film that I saw without knowing a lot about it and that it, it was so rewarding for not knowing how it was going to unfold because it's a film that unfolds in a very surprising way. And it asks a great deal of her in the, the protagonist role. It asks her to start off as a woman in this sort of strange, confined relationship uh, with a man played by Antonia Banderas. And you can see from the earliest moments of the film that there are deep layers to her feelings about him. There are deep layers to the relationship that they have. And you can see that she's holding a lot of herself back. But it takes a very long time for the film to unpack all of the things that she's experiencing and why it takes a very long time to understand kind of the, the depths of those early moments. But in the meantime, in, in the mid-going, we get to see like a very physical performance out of her. We get to see a very uh, outsized emotional performance out, her, out of her. There's a wide range of sort of beats she needs to hit and emotions she needs to cover. Uh, and by the end, I was just so blown away by like the, the depths of body horror that this film went to and how much it relied on you kind of understanding her as a person and understanding all of the things she's tamping down throughout this entire film. Mm, that's such a good choice. Mm. I, I love that movie. Uh, my number three is actually a villain, but I don't think of him as a villain. It's Tony Todd and Candyman. Yeah. <laughs> Helen, I came for you. Do I know you? No. No. But you doubted me. I'm sorry, I have to go. No need to leave yet. I love Tony Todd's performance in Candyman. I think it has a sensuality to it that's really beguiling and a grace that he exudes that contradicts the horror, the body horror of seeing like this this chest with bees coming out and bees everywhere. And he also is able to straddle a, an interesting line of also being representative of the lasting trauma of slavery. And it's a really beautiful performance that, like, sits on so many different avenues and I feel is injecting more contradictions and textures to the film's portrayal of race than it may even expect in some ways because there are some issues I have with the film's uh, racial politics. But I think what Tony Todd does in that performance is what I really love about horror, which is an awareness of the body and of also sensuality and sexuality, which can sometimes be missing in horror films, at least lately. Um, so that's something I think is a performance that I find more and more in every time I watch it. Candyman has really stuck around, too. I think I haven't seen it since it came out, which I think would have been around high school time for me. But a lot of listeners on Twitter brought that up as mm -hmm. one that they would suggest for this list, and I think I'm gonna have to revisit it because I think there's is there a remake coming up. Is that what there's it is? There's a remake yeah. that's Jordan Peele produced. Okay, uh, and we'll see how that turns out. I think that there's a good chance to do something really interesting, especially because there are failures to the actual film. Mm. Um, but Tony Todd's performance is so magnetic and so towering that 
good luck for anyone stepping into his. Mm-hmm. That man, what he does with his voice in that performance, too, it's I love it. I think he's an actor who has a really good understanding of how powerful a voice can be. And, and it just slides over you like silk sometimes, which is such a contradiction from the fact that he is the villain of this movie. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. I mean, we love villains. We love a good oh, villain. Yes. And in horror movies, maybe we're supposed to love them less than in, say, something like a Disney movie where mm-hmm. your villain, uh, you know, gives a big musical performance mm-hmm. and is in some way just kind of like this, like, delicious malefactor who does things wrong uh, and maybe not quite so murdery mm-hmm. as horror movie villains. But you have all of these franchises like the Nightmare on Elm Street movies or the Phantasm movies where people... People start to get fixated on the villain because the villain is the the thing that carries through. Mm. And then you have something like Candyman where just from the get-go, people are like, <laughs> screw all the protagonists, yeah. whatever. It's all about the villain. Yeah, because you want – and you also just want to learn more about him because especially the way he carries himself – Oh, my God. I just there's something sumptuous about that performance. Oh, it's like a really good piece of chocolate cake. To me. That's, that's the reaction I have with watching Tony Todd and Candyman. Love it. So the remake of Candyman, you mentioned Jordan Peele involved in that. At number three, I have a Jordan Peele directed performance, Lupita Nyong'o mm-hmm. in Us. Now, I wasn't going to put this on the list. Just felt too soon. I've talked about the film and this performance already a lot this year on the show. We'll be talking about the performance and possibly the film even more at the year's end. But then, Angelica, you and I were talking at the screening for The Farewell. I mentioned how I was probably going to leave this off. And then you dropped the bomb that you didn't like us. Currently my favorite film of the year. So I'm putting Lupita Nyong'o at number three. Yes, because of the performance. I mean, talk about physicality, but also because... The farewell started. The lights went down before I could find out what you don't like about us, Angelica. Oh, God. How can this be? Jordan Peele is one of those filmmakers I almost purposely don't comment on um, because I didn't like Get Out really that much either. I had issues with that. But with us, I just thought there was just a lot of sloppy filmmaking choices and I didn't buy into the world is like the simplest explanation to give. Uh, and I really wanted to. And I think Lupita makes interesting choices. I do. My problem is she's in service of a movie and a s- character story that I don't think works. So that's, you know, it's one of those situations where sometimes you just can't buy into a movie. Like sometimes it's like it's you're just not on the same wavelength with it. And that's kind of how I felt with us. But I you do like the performance. At I least. do think she's, okay. she's committed. She's giving her all. She's making interesting choices. And even if I do have a lot of issues with pretty much everything in that movie. (laughs) I do think there's something interesting she's doing, and I'm curious to see her work in a horror context more often. I'd be really interested because I think she like really put herself physically into that role. I think it's really understandable, like having the the film's lack of logic get in the way of it's in, like of being able to enjoy it. But from the moment she started talking as Red, uh, my the the hairs just went up on the back mm-hmm. of my neck. The things that she does with her face and her voice in that introductory scene for the adult version of Red were just so eerie and unnatural. I mean. To me, that performance goes a really long way towards just covering up any of the wait, what, where are the rabbit? who's feeding and cleaning up after the rabbits? Like <laughs> questions like that, just like basic logical world questions. How far does this program extend? Why did they just go leave all of these people mm. underground? How does any of this work? 
I can forget about that as mm. long as Lupita Nyong'o is talking because, ah, she's she's so chilling. Unnatural is a great way to describe pretty much everything she does as that character. Yeah. All right, Tasha, we're at our number two picks. What do you have in that slot? Well, I had to go classic with a, at least one of these, and it felt like it would be a, a literal sin to overlook Anthony Perkins in Psycho. I understand. I don't hate her. I hate what she's become. I hate the illness. Wouldn't it be better if you put her someplace? You mean an institution? A madhouse? People always call a madhouse someplace, don't they? Put her in someplace. I'm sorry. I didn't mean it to sound uncaring. What do you know about caring? Have you ever seen the inside of one of those places? The laughing and the tears. And the cruel eyes studying you. My mother there. But she's harmless. She's as harmless as one of those stuffed birds. I revisited this uh, a little while ago for Next Picture Show, and what struck me about um, like the most recent rewatch is not the the big reveal, although the the gleeful smile on his face at the moment of the big reveal is still for me one of the all time most terrifying horror moments. Yeah, his his transformation in that moment and his his obvious joy in what he thinks he's about to do. It's so terrifying. But if you look at the earlier parts of the movie where he's just, he's portraying this, this gentle troubled soul who is again, as I say with all of the people on my list, kind of, kind of complicated and kind of rich and kind of layered and suppressing a lot. That's like leaking up in ways that you can see, but not understand. I feel like, that is part of what makes good horror is that feeling of there's something going on here that I don't understand and it's going to have terrible consequences. I can't see what they are yet, but nobody's yelling at me. You know, there's a, a guy with a weed whacker behind the door. There's just this sense of something is not quite right. And everything about his performance is here is a, a perfectly nice somewhat lonely man uh, who is a little oppressed under his family obligations, and yet something is not quite right. And the way he ramps up the tension of the film just by being kind to Janet Lee yes. is yes. tremendous. He, ent- he enters the room and everything on the surface should be just fine. But immediately, you know, something's very wrong. Somehow he he projects that in his performance. And of course, in that that very final sequence, I think is the best way to describe it. (laughs) Angelica, what do you got at number two? My number two is Betty Davis and whatever happened to baby Jane. Do y'all think I could really go a top five without mentioning my girl, (laughs) Betty Davis, queen of acting? I think 
she's amazing in this role, partially because it would be so easy for an actor not to sympathize with that character and just go so grotesque that you don't see the humanity in her. You don't see the longing in Baby Jane. And just to see how loneliness can curdle into something really ugly when you're when you isolate and you feed into these negative emotions you have. And she just gives just these little grace notes, especially when baby Jane is like looking in the mirror and then realizes um, during the song of a letter to daddy. And she realizes, Oh, I am not this young girl that I used to be. And the fear and, and longing and anger and moments like that is just really beautiful. And, I think very sympathetic to a sort of character type I'm always interested in, in horror and outside of horror, which is the mad woman. I think she is so good at showing the layers of women's anger that is just, she's our cinematic Medusa and she's amazing (laughs) in this role. What a great phrase. That is a film I just watched for this week because you did let slip that it was going to be on your list, Angelica, and it's wild. Oh, my goodness. I mean, I knew the reputation, but somehow I was still not prepared. And Davis's performance is huge, but not outlandish. Mm. Uh, I mean, I I like how she embraces how big she can go, but for me, it, it never really gets silly it also has physical elements to it Mm. the way she moves about she's she's often wearing these flowing gowns that are very elegant Mm. but because she's often you know drunk she's kind of stumbling a little bit and the contrast between those two things at once is immediately disorienting and i think you're right about um, her being able to sympathize with the character and the performance because even when when things get really crazy and really violent which i was not prepared for um She's fearsome, but also she's she's afraid of herself mm. in those same moments. So there's there's so much going on in, yes. in in a performance that is often parodied, and when taken out of context, can seem yeah. you know a little over the top. But I thought it absolutely worked in the film, and yeah, I enjoyed the movie quite a bit. I'm glad to hear that. We're down to my number two, and in that slot, I am going with Max Shrek from Nosferatu, way, way back here. For me, maybe this is the ultimate physical horror film performance, and maybe that's because this is a 1922 silent, so yeah. there's not dialogue really to work with here from director F.W. Murnau. Shrek plays the Dracula stand-in, Count Orlock, and he's not hes not scary, I don't think, as much as he is just plain hideous. <laughs> there's, there's the paleness, there's the bulging eyes, that elongated nose. He, he just looks like a skinned rat. That that's just been skinned. Like he, he's in the moment of realizing I was just skinned. That's kind of his expression. Uh, but for me, it's also about the way Shrek moves in this part. Uh, as the count early on, he holds his limbs kind of close to his body and they they look sort of like when a spider has been poked and it retracts everything, mm. pulled its legs in and it's just waiting for its chance to start scurrying again. So there's a little bit of a threat there. And then later, when he does grow more threatening, those arms unfold, they hang all the way down, and we notice that there's these these the long fingers and the nails, too, of course, exaggerating the whole length of him. And how about the shadow? I mean, I'm just going to assume this was actually Shrek's shadow that they used, because it's <laughs> the same shape, it seems like, but when it's cast against the wall above a victim or that famous shot moving smoothly up the stairs... I mean, honestly, probably what Shrek's doing here is closer to mime than what we think of, you know, in terms of modern film performance. But maybe that's why it remains so distinctive. And it still has this sense of uh, it still has this haunting 
element that we don't see often mm. today. So our movies don't look like this anymore. Our nightmares maybe sometimes do. And perhaps that's what Shrek is capturing here mm. in this performance. So yeah, I had to go way back to Nosferatu. There is just a sort of almost uncanny valley effect yeah. to the look of him. I mean, there, it. I think you're right in describing it like a nightmare because it has that feeling of this is something that shouldn't be and yet it is. Mm. And it just gets into that space in the brain of, of you know, unnaturality. Uh, I was glad you gave us your list in advance because it freed me up from uh, putting Lupita and Max on my list. Like both of them were, were okay. very high in my consideration. And I was like, great, somebody's got covered. this covered. <laughs> but I think of of all of the potential crossovers between our lists, like I was I was most tempted to go with Max Shrek. He's he's creepy yeah. and very, very and memorable. Very memorable. So we're all the way down now to number one. What's at the top of your list, Tasha? Well, I pulled a full-on Adam Kempinar. I'm sitting in for Adam Kempinar. I have to do an oh, Adam no. Kempinar cheat. Oh, no. Is, is this going to be 10 <laughs> picks? And we've, we've got 45 minutes of the show to go yet? It's sort of 10 picks, and it's sort of just one pick. And it is the, the cast of Alien. The so, cast of Alien. So here's the thing. The oh, conventional boy. wisdom would be, well, it's Sigourney Weaver. She's the star. Like, she's the final girl. She's the important one. But I feel like the the fun of Alien, the exciting part of Alien, is the way the cast interacts. Like, I feel like Sigourney Weaver is at her strongest in this film when she's interacting with Tom Skerritt, when she's facing down her captain about what she knows the rules are and how he is uh, already violated them and, and endangered the ship. Uh, John Hurt, you know, gives one of one of horror's most memorable sequences and makes it entirely convincing. Um, just the the interplay between Yafet Kato and uh, Harry Dean Stanton, like the the easy like working class way they bounce off of each other, the degree to which they feel comfortable with each other. Veronica Cartwright, like pulling a craft, classic scream queen kind of moment. If I had to pick one, if I had to go like full MVP, it would probably be Ian Holm, you know, for his his deadpan, chilling performance, uh, particularly in his final scene. But for me, it's about the ensemble. It's about how this group of people creates an environment and a sense of like a, a rich lived in space where all of them have their roles and all of them have their old, old arguments and their old, old tensions. And when things start to go bad, like you feel the strain of those tensions between them. You feel all of these old things kind of coming up again. And so for me, it's not about a single performance here. It's about how these characters interact with each other and how they work together to create a place that like so much of the this film is the set dressing so much of it is the direction so much of it is the the art of it but also just so much of it is the people and i just i didn't want to point to one person and say it's him or it's her because it's not it's them you're already causing trouble by classifying alien as horror i mean there's a lot of debate over that i oh, i buy it horror. i get it yeah i'm i'm wait what I feel like saying? Jackie isn't Jackie can be horror and Alien isn't horror. I'm just saying you're a troublemaker, Tasha. And now an oh, ensemble I'll, I'll take that. Ensemble is your <laughs> your pick for number one. But I agree with you on home being the MVP. So so I like that. And that absolutely is one of the strengths of Alien is the Absolutely. the interactions, the interrelationships, and the time the movie takes to set all those up. I think makes you the filmmakers and the actors understand the importance of that too, mm-hmm. and it's why they give it that time. Uh, to and it, it pays off for the rest of the film. Yeah, definitely. 
your number one, Angelica. Please, is it just one person? It is just one person. Thank you. Um, it's Isabel Ajani in Possession. Um, mm. I recently rewatched the film because I hadn't watched it in a minute uh, for this list, and I was just blown away all over again. She's playing two characters. One, a wife who <laughs> is making things very difficult for Sam Neill, and they're like their relationship is falling apart in a very brutal, ugly way, and you see his anger flare up and her reaction to it and how she seems both attracted to and repulsed by him and his anger, which is really fascinating. And then she's also playing this doppelganger figure who, at first blush, seems to be just, you know, an angelic counterpoint to this unraveling woman, uh, but has her own prickliness to her. And they're both very dynamic. I mean, it's just such a dynamic, frightening performance that makes even the smallest domestic items feel charged with such power and potential for violence. And it's also, I think, one of the great mad women performances of cinema. I mean, she really puts her body into everything. And there the moment where she's flailing and 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 throwing her groceries around and just sort of hitting herself, it really took me back to moments where I've had like episodes and become violent towards myself and it's like really jarring to see such truthful honesty about what it means to kind of lose sense of yourself due to relationships and everything going on and I'm not even touching on the whole Lovecraftian looking monster that she has sex with in this (laughs) movie Um, I mean this is just an amazing movie and it's a testament to how horror can deal with some of the uglier nastier emotions and experiences we have in life and show them in an unvarnished way and i think she does that beautifully so possession the other film on your list i had not seen but unlike baby jane i couldn't get my hands on this in time it's it's pretty much unavailable and not uh, uh, streaming anywhere and as a matter of fact even my public library system interlibrary loan which never lets me down could not find it so i am going to have to at some point catch up with possession for my number one well it's where we started i'm back to an ari aster film with hereditary with tony collette at the day job i wrote about midsomar and hereditary and ari aster's mouths of madness we talked a little bit about Mm -hmm. this i focused on the signature visual motif he has of a gaping mouth reacting Mm -hmm. in horror Uh, you can check that out at thinkchristian.net i think the signature mouth of madness belongs to tony collette in hereditary she just Gives, goes all in on this full-throated fit, um, both in the face of personal trauma, similar to Midsommar at the beginning of the film, but then also to the supernatural threats that she faces later. Now, that's physicality, right? Her contorting her face in that way. But I have Colette as number one because she not only does that, she not only leverages the genre that way, but at the same time, she gives this rooted, deeply realistic performance that could easily anchor a more conventional family drama. I think of that group therapy confession that I mentioned in our Midsommar review. There's so much modulation on her part in that scene, hitting big emotional notes and then these smaller confessional ones. I also think about the moment where she says something terrible out loud for the first time. She acknowledges that something has happened verbally, and then she does this little pause of shock because she surprised herself. In, th- in that moment, it's almost like Colette is is acting with herself in the scene, and she's doing it effortlessly. 
But again, that doesn't mean, you know, because she has those moments, it doesn't mean she's afraid to commit to the sort of horror theatrics that we get later in the film. And that includes the possession scenes where she clicks consciousness in this movie is those were some of the hair on the back of my neck moments for hereditary. You see that sort of thing often in horror films, that sort of possession moment. And I think this one gets it as creepily as any other I've seen. So I wish I could be more surprising with my number one. I gave a lot of love to Colette last year when hereditary came out, but honestly, hers is my favorite horror performance. Listeners, if you want to share some of yours, please do send those to feedback at filmspotting.net. All right, let's talk honorable mentions briefly here. You've already brought up a few, Tasha, that you considered for the list, a few that have been mentioned that you would have put on yours. What else do you have there for performances you considered? God, so many. Uh, Ryu Ishibashi in Audition, Mm -hmm. uh, Gene Barovetz in The Vanishing, Dan Stevens in The Guest, uh, Ivana Beccaro in Pan's Labyrinth, Daniel Kaluuya in Get Out, Conrad Veet in The Man Who Laughs, Judith Anderson in Rebecca, Vincent Price in Everything, (laughs) Essie Davis in The Babadook, Peter Laurie in M, Linda Blair in The Exorcist. Uh, But one thing I'm curious about with you guys is whether you had to, like, it's point sort of shave things off the list by going well maybe that's not really horror because mm. i had a handful of things like anthony hopkins in silence of the lambs robert mitchum in night of the hunter bjork and dancer in the dark uh that i was i was just kind of thinking okay mm, technically these are more dramas or these yeah. are more thrillers you know what i did with that if it was questionable even wherever i fell on the line i kind of used that as a way to set something aside it was like an excuse to say okay Even if I consider this horror, I'm not going to put it on the list. So, for example, Ingrid Bergman in Gaslight Mm -hmm. or Robert Mitchum in Night of the Hunter, very top contenders for me. But there's some debate about where those Mm -hmm. films fall. So I just kind of said, well, that's excuse enough to leave them off my list. I also saw a lot of people stumping for Jaws as a horror film. And while the the performances there are fantastic and make that movie, I just can't get behind Jaws as a horror film. Mm. Any honorable mentions for you, Angelica? Yeah, I have a few honorable mentions. Like I said, you know, I really love horror and it's kind of hard to whittle things down. I I whittled things down by just being like, what has been on my mind lately? That was really how I did it. If you asked me like tomorrow, it would probably look very different. (laughs) But uh, Dwayne Jones and Ganja and Hess, I think. is Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, That's a freaky film. (laughs) I like it freaky when it comes to horror. (laughs) Uh, Simone Simon and Cat People. Oh, yeah. Um, What else did I have on this list? Claire Higgins and Hellraiser 2. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, I also had Audition on the list. Um, God, there's just so much good horror, and there's so much you can find in horror, and horror is just such a fascinating and rich genre. It's it's hard to kind of whittle it down. Oh, Feruza Balk in The Craft. Mm, sure. That's a good compilation. I'm going to add a few more honorable mentions here. Some of these I'll leave off that have already been brought up, but I don't think we've mentioned Haley Joel Osment in The Sixth Sense. Just rewatched that this year. And yes, he really does make that film. Mia Farrow in Rosemary's Baby. I do have Conrad Veidt as well, Tasha, but for The Hypnotized Man in the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Oh, nice. And Garance Marie from Raw, which made my top 10 list. Mm. That year, we heard from at Art House Garage on Twitter who said, so youthful and full of life, and her performance makes her feel relatable, even as so many of her actions are unthinkable. I do think that captures it well. Two more here. Carl Bohm in Peeping Tom, and then Jennifer Connelly 
in Dark Water. I think she's mm-hmm. underrated in that film. I think yeah. that film overall is underrated as one of these sort of psychologically nuanced, metaphorical uh, horror pictures. So that makes up the honorable mentions for our top five horror movie performances. Again, if you want to share yours, send those to feedback at filmspotting.net. And that is our show. If it wasn't enough for you, head over to the website, filmspotting.net, and you can find in our archives reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. Also on the website, you can vote for the current Film Spotting poll. We're asking you, what is Quentin Tarantino's best film since Pulp Fiction? And I think, according to the three of us, if you don't answer Jackie Brown, you're just doing Quentin Tarantino wrong, right? Yeah, you need Jesus if you don't answer Jackie <laughs> Brown. That's what you need. Also, you didn't realize that net personally logged you every time you vote. But in this case, a little thing pops up that says, has bad film taste. <laughs> we'll have to add that, Tasha. If you want a Film Spotting t-shirt or any other Film Spotting merch, head over to the website for that, too. You can find it at filmspotting.net slash shop. You can always connect with us on Facebook and on Twitter. Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. And to subscribe to the weekly Film Spotting newsletter, well, filmspotting.net slash newsletter is the place to do that. Opening wide this week is The Lion King. Very early on, when the three of us talked about doing this show together, we looked at the calendar, saw this was coming out, just threw it out there. I thought, would, would this be something, you know, we'd want to cover? Pretty vehement no from the both of you. Am I assuming you didn't make it to the screening then? You can't. Oh, I went to the screening. I mean, what do you got, Tasha? To some degree, and now I you wish we'd change the topic. And, and no, you, we no, no. I think no it would good? be. I think it would have been a very short discussion, and it would have been that was unnecessary. <laughs> it, it just it feels so unnecessary. It's. I guess it's a money generation machine for Disney, but I like artistically, aesthetically, conceptually, I cannot come up with a reason for this movie to exist. It's a near shot for shot remake with photorealistic lions and the technology is very impressive, but like it doesn't expand on the original or get any give give like any depth or answer any of the uh, controversies or debates that were with that film from the beginning. It doesn't justify its existence in any way, except these are some very, very pretty environments uh, and, you know, some talented voice people. But like all this we did have before, like I we already had this movie. Why did we need another copy of this movie that's basically just like when people started drawing here's what pokemon would look like in real life it's it's that at feature length perhaps then listeners would be better off heading out to something that's in limited release here in chicago we do have the art of self-defense which i know you've already mentioned tasha you enjoyed quite a bit more it is also the next next picture show film to be paired with a classic movie in this case you're going to do that with fight club Also in limited release here in Chicago, Lulu Wong's The Farewell, recommended highly, I would say, by the three of us. Next week, we are going to review Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and use that as an excuse to do our top 10 Tarantino characters. Adam would not miss that show, so he will be back. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Thank you 
so much, Tasha and Angelica. This was as much fun as I thought it would be. Loved your choices. Loved the Midsommar debate. I just like everything you guys do. I'm following you both all the time. Let listeners know where they can follow you, too. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. I'm the film and TV editor for TheVerge.com, where you can periodically find me writing about film and or TV. I actually just interviewed Lulu Wong and talked to her a lot about The Farewell, about multiculturalism in the film, about uh, being about living in different worlds and how that story became the story of the film. And uh, I got her to explain to me the little drinking game with the flappy bird arms. So if you're well, we're wondering about that, TheVerge.com is where to find it. You can also obviously find me over at The Next Picture Show, where we every week talk about an old film and a new film and how they relate to each other. Where are you at, Angelica? You can unfortunately find my black self on Twitter too often. I'm <laughs> Angelica. It's... B-A-S-T-I-E-N is the Twitter handle, first and last name. Uh, I am a staff writer at Vulture. I write a lot about film and television and sometimes even comic books, using them as a lens to write about mental illness, race and gender, and, of course, acting, especially Keanu Reeves, my man. Yeah. You're pretty much responsible for the, the, the renaissance yeah, that we're experiencing, I've been right? on this beat. Yeah. He should be Four thanking years, you. Keanu, like, it's time. The people want it. I want it. I know you probably want it, too. Who doesn't? Okay, let's get together already. Long overdue. Thanks to both of you very much. This was fun. <laughs> Thanks, as always, for having us. Thank you for inviting me. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Can we? Can you back up? Yeah. Jog R. Doden is pronounced Yah Doden. I think it's better if you just make it up. I I no. I, I want to. I want to do this. You're not going to get it anyway. I'm going to do this. I'm I'm going to be method about this. All right. Film spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.